Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9, if you better yourself, you better the world. Well, hello, hello, hello. It is another Monday and another episode, and here we are. Once again, I am joined by my frequent guest co-host, Matthew Oliver, as we continue his journey and talk about his journey in recovery. And we started this little thing that we're probably going to keep going. And we just He's been reading some books that I've had, and I've let him borrow some, and he's been scoping them out, and we've been talking about them. In this episode, we talk about a book written by a wonderful and incredible woman by the name of Miles Salvitz, and the book is called Unbroken Brain, and the subtitle is A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction. And this is just a great book. She is a great writer, very talented. She finds an awesome and unique way to intertwine her story with what she wanted to discuss. So she has examples from her her life, from her experiences, and it's just a very enjoyable book. So I'm going to leave a link to her website and for her book. Obviously, this is not sponsored in any way, shape, or form by her or any... I don't, I don't get any kickback if you buy her book. I just think it's an awesome book, and I would really like you guys to check it out and give it a read. So I will leave that in the description, and we just we really just kind of get into it a little bit about how our set and setting really influences our addiction. I mean, just so many factors go into it that some factors we don't even think about. We kind of went off track for a moment, for a short moment anyway, in this episode, where we talked about the importance of really like getting a calendar and scheduling your days out. Even if you're not in recovery from a substance use or anything else, having that organization helps your life tremendously. Since I've started Room 9, I have really focused in on getting a system down, getting organized, and that can make you so much more productive. It keeps you focused, and that's important, especially when you're in recovery. Even if you do that for any stupid thing you have to do, if you put it down and get in the habit of writing a schedule, it's great and healthy for you, so make sure you do that. And before I get out of here and let you listen in on the episode, check out room9podcast.com. We are officially selling t-shirts. And if you watch our little video, if you donate $20 or more, you get a t-shirt. And that is our new little thing we're doing. Homemade, handmade, right in the Room 9 studio. <laughs> so make sure you check that out because we are starting some awesome things. And that's about it. I don't know, I've had this like switch flipped in me recently and I'm excited for the future more so than I have ever been so far in the past. A lot of things are happening. I had a little screw up and slip up myself and I was lying about some stupid thing for no reason, but I think something like it was a wake up call for me to not reminder, I guess, to not get stagnant, to not relax, to not sit back, to not hold back and to keep kicking life's ass. And it was awesome experience to have. And I have really just become this person who does not sulk in his failures. I enjoy them nowadays. And I learn from them so quickly. 
And it's so amazing when you can develop an awesome relationship with failure and an awesome relationship with time because everything takes patience. We have to be patient no matter what we are trying to change in our lives or what we are trying to accomplish or do. We need patience. So work on your relationship with time, work on your relationship with failure, because if you can have a good relationship with those two things, you can do anything you put your mind to. So make sure you do that. Room9podcast.com. I love you guys. You guys are the best. As always, thank you for your support. Thank you for your ears. And I will be talking to you soon. Peace. My friend, yeah. guest co-host, random co-host. Right. I mean, you are Room Nine's mostest, bestest <laughs> <laughs> guest. Let's, let's Re- go with uh, most prolific. Repeated, repeated. What word am I looking for here? Prolific, I think. There we go. Yeah. And um, yeah, so welcome back. Thank you. As always. Thanks for. I guess me. I'm not totally sure when we'll be putting this out, but um, I've been on a podcast like hammer man like last week days just sending out i got the spreadsheet in um notion and i'm emailing people getting guests on so i'm just plugging away it was nice to kind of get ahead on the scheduling for a change yeah i realized i kind of threw the podcast somewhat on i don't want to say the back seat because it sounds like i was neglecting it but i wasn't putting any effort into the scheduling, right? And so I had to really get ahead of the game. That's awesome. So you've used the uh, whole COVID thing, the quarantining and whatnot, to come to bring it back to center here. Oh, that's right. Bring it back to your roots. Yeah, which is so, great. Yeah, I got to keep pushing that. But you know, it's good to have you back on here. Yeah, it's great to be here. I've had now just over two months since my relapse that we talked about in the last episode. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling very i think the medication for the bipolar is really working really well i feel much more level i feel more like centered like earlier today i was able to read a book for like a solid hour with not being distracted which for me like is huge that's tough for anybody (laughs) yeah i mean especially i mean if you talk to my mom she'll tell you i was always bored as a kid and constantly just all over the place And that's kind of describes my entire life, like very easily distracted, just jumping from thing to thing. And I don't feel the need to do that so much now that I'm on like a medication. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah. So I'm able to get back into like meditation, back into reading. I'm trying to do just reading about recovery on a daily basis to kind of keep me focused on that as a need in my life. Because that's something that always falls by the wayside. I get complacent. I start to reestablish myself. And then I start to want to like act like a normal person. There's nothing wrong with me. I, I don't need anything other than what every other person needs. And I lose track of the fact that I have some pretty special needs as someone in recovery. So it's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot, trying to like fit in somewhere where you don't fit in. Yeah, that reminds me of, I think... For anybody who's not only recovery, who's trying to change and improve their life in any way, it's a daily reflection at the very least. You have to every day kind of reflect on what you're doing, how you're doing, what your motivations are, where you're at, where you want to be. I mean, I think we have to do that as individuals all the time. And it reminds me of a quote that this really wise man once said, I know I got this as long as I know I don't got this. 
think his name was Sean Cudahy. Yeah, that's a great quote. <laughs> and But that always is something I remember I came up with in my short-term rehab or with one right outside of New York City because I remember just looking around and seeing all these people who've been in and out 40,000 times and it, they always had a point in their recovery where they were like, all right, I don't have to do this anymore. I'm good. I don't have to do this anymore. I'm good. And the next thing you know, you know, you're in you're in a trap house smoking crack. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. And it has to go deeper though than knowing that complacency will trip you up because I knew that probably five years ago. You know, that's something mm-hmm. that is pretty apparent in any good like rehab or any good outpatient. They'll tell you that. Like, I just have this idea in my mind that I don't want this to affect my entire life. And I think it's just a, the wrong way to look at it. It's not that it's going to affect my entire life, but I won't have a good life if I don't take care of this first. So that's kind of how I'm I'm looking at it now. The other thing is in my reading, and this is kind of what I want to talk about today, is a couple of different things. So I guess first, the very first episode that you and I did together, we talked about MAT and how I... That's right. Like struggled with that a lot. I think the reason I struggled with it was because I was going to 12-step programs. And there, as you know, they will tell you if you're on any sort of MAT, which is medically assisted treatment. So like a Suboxone program or a methadone program or now Sublocade, which is like the new wave of Suboxone. They'll tell you that you don't have any clean time whatsoever. And that for someone who has put in a lot of time either on Suboxone or on Sublocade, is very discouraging. But I never knew the science, and I could never make a good argument for why it's recovery and why it's not the same thing as switching vodka for scotch. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of the analogy that they use. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's more of like a narrative trick that they like to play, which is a lot of their tactics. I'm not saying that if you're in 12-step, you're not in recovery. I would never say that. I think all forms of recovery are valid. And if it works for you, it works for you. So the science behind that, and this I got out of the book that I just finished that you would let me borrow, Unbroken Brain by Maya Salvitz, which I think I learned how to pronounce her name finally. Yeah, it's a tough name. <laughs> it really is, but it's a great book. So... The difference is when you're on MAT, it's a regular dosing. When you're using, and I'm sure you can relate to this, you're using based on how much you can get, and that totally determines how much you're going to use. So if I could get six bags that day, I'm using six bags that day. If I could get 30 bags that day, I'm using those 30 bags, right? I don't know if that's your experience. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty much. So what that does is now you're constantly oscillating between withdrawal when you couldn't really get a lot or couldn't get any and periods where you're super high and you're super like in the throes of it what that creates in your brain is what's called sensitization so now you're actually more sensitive to that drug than someone who's on mat and here's the key difference it's a scheduled dose it's always the same once you get leveled on it you don't really feel high anymore And the reason that is, is because with MAT and scheduled dosing, it creates tolerance. And with tolerance, you can actually function, you can learn, you can live, you can do all of the things that any normal, quote unquote, person would do who isn't using drugs. And it brings you to a baseline. So once you're at a baseline, then you can have normal experiences in your life. You can have, you can just do anything that a person who doesn't 
have MAT or anything in their system, you can do all those same things. I think a lot of where so much of the bad rep comes from MAT and stuff like Suboxone and even methadone, something that has helped people and changed lives and helped save many lives is the fact that people abuse it. And those people give it a bad name like everybody else who does anything that abuses something gives it a bad name. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it doesn't work. It doesn't mean it's not right. It just means people who had no really ever intention of staying in recovery or getting clean, whether they believe that or not, end up abusing and using things and don't change any behaviors. That is a huge difference, I think, as well. And I mean, I don't, I never understood it. I'm, I have obviously, I've, people know who've listened to the show know my thoughts. I've talked about 12 step programs many times. Yes, mm-hmm. I've seen them change lives. But it's also very dogmatic and reminds me a lot of church. Yeah. And, it, you know, they have that whole group. And it's a lot of people who just don't know where else to go, how else to be in recovery. That's where they go to because that's kind of like the general thing. Here you go. Yeah. And like in the 80s and 90s, it became like part of pop culture when like, I guess, in reading more in that book, recovery almost became, or like going to rehab was almost in vogue at, at that time. So, at and that's when um, a lot of like celebrities and musicians and famous people came to the forefront as being like 12-step recovery. And then it got introduced into somehow not only like the medical side of recovery but also in the justice system uses it a lot as well mm-hmm. and it kind of frames it in a moral like a, as a moral deficit and i completely disagree that addiction is a moral deficit it's not i think it's something that has a lot to do with a lot more factors than just somebody who doesn't know better or doesn't have a strong moral compass um, that may play into it a little bit where you know just based on your background and your schema you may have a different view on, you know, should or shouldn't drugs be legal. And that's not necessarily an argument I want to get into. It's just an example of, like, you may look at something that the government says is illegal, like speeding, for example. It's illegal (laughs) to go over 55, but literally everybody does it. So there are people, obviously, throughout the world who have, we're all on a different spectrum of morality, if you will. So I think that plays a role in it, too. Yeah, there's a lot of weird things. I mean... This whole kind of like even social distancing thing and COVID-19 thing has brought upon like weird things, how everybody is viewing something through a completely different lens and perspective on how things should get done. And I think I just did this podcast with this guy, Timothy, Timothy Harrington, his name is, and I think it's, I'm going to release that not tomorrow, Monday, but the following week. Okay. And we had a, this whole discussion about it, how when we go through an experience and we it works for us that all of a sudden now that's the solution for everybody else and then we go off and we push that solution on other people as if that solution is the one one all be all for everybody right and we tend to do this as human beings we have an opinion on something a perspective of something and that's it and we get closed-minded and shove that on everybody else and i think that's happens everywhere whether it's religion whether it's you know theology whether it's recovery whatever it is you, you end up having this experience and then you think that's it. Like even when I think of religion, if you have a spiritual experience at a Christian event 
what's going to happen. You're going to be into Christianity. If you have a spiritual experience at a, you know, where there's Islam and they're reading the Quran and you have this beautiful, ineffable experience, oh, it's got to be Allah. It doesn't matter, you know, whatever your experience is. And then all of a sudden you think that's it. This is the absolute truth. When in reality, it's so different for every one of us. Yeah, I think just the nature of being a human being is that what makes us all the same is the fact that we're all different, you know? That's right. And if you can wrap your head around that and understand that, like, you and I are two completely different individuals, we, me and you personally, share kind of a similar background, and that, I think, is how you align yourself with different people in life, and, you know, your friends, obviously, will have kind of a similar background, because those are the people that you get along with, those are people that you can understand and relate to, but it doesn't mean that you and I, in recovery, are going to have the same path. It doesn't mean that your version of recovery is wrong, and mine is right, Mm. and that's where I think 12-step programs miss it, is that they're pushing it as this is the only way to recover. And I know they don't all do that. I know that. No, there's, yeah, there's some, I've been to some good groups that aren't always like that, but right. a huge majority of it's, again, they use the Christian Christianity analogy. Mm-hmm. There's some amazing people out there and there's some super judgy people, you know, and it's just, it's part of every group, every culture. Yeah, Absolutely. But I guess let's kind of dive a little more into this book. What else did you kind of get from the overall experience? I guess it is an experience, but reading. Yeah, so I really liked the chapter on set and setting, which talks about how you can like analyze your personal degree of addiction. And there's like different levels of it. So depending on when you start your addiction, there's several other things. So like pattern history of use, your brain wiring and your genetics, and then the cultural context that surrounded like your heaviest period of use and like on so for me personally uh when i started using opiates heavily it was during the opiate epidemic back when doctors were handing out pills like they were candy i had had a back surgery so i got a ton of them given to me and the cultural context was all of a sudden anyone who had these was highly sought after And they were like the coolest person in the room because literally everybody wanted to be doing that. Now I say everybody, I mean everybody that was, you know, in their 20s and partying, Mm -hmm. right? So I go to a a party and I would have the supply and it would be great. Everyone would be wanting to be my friend, but really they didn't want to be my friend. They just wanted the drugs that I had. So for me, what that kind of cemented into my mind was in order to be accepted in order to to go to you know a social event or whatever i have to have opiates and that's kind of what like really hooked me like deeply beyond the euphoria and all of that and i think that for me that's what has led to like such a long road of recovery my thought process used to be well what am i going to do when i can't use drugs for this purpose so it took a long time to develop you know other skills in my life. Yeah, there's so much more that goes into why you're addicted to something than just a physiological dependency. In fact, the more I reflect on my addiction, the more I talk with other people, that's the easiest friggin' part. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to get through a few days of being sick. Not that it's fun and not that it's even really easy, but it's still the easiest part. And I love that. And I think what you were kind of just talking about, because when I think of set and setting, I immediately think of psychedelics and how 
that really affects every part of your trip. If you take whatever mushrooms, acid, mm-hmm. whatever it is, if you take that, it's always your environment that really, really can affect it. And I think that's with anything, just maybe not as intense. But yeah, like you said, all right, I have this drug. I go here, I feel accepted. And that really affects your wiring, what you think of when you think of the drug now. And I want to read this paragraph I just found from the book. In addiction, it's not just the type of drugs you take that matters or your reasons for taking them. The dosages, the timing of the doses, and even the place where you get high can make all the difference in terms of how your behavior will be affected. Although it might seem like dose pattern, culture, and environment should have little impact on a chemical taken in a sufficient amount to produce a psychoactive effect, in fact, these apparently extraneous factors can be the difference between addiction and casual use, and even sometimes between life and death. 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 (laughs) <laughs> what i can't hear you <laughs> but yeah i mean that's exactly what you pretty much well just said right it's so much so much more goes into what it is whether you be addicted or not is the environment the set and the setting where you're at who you're around what's going on what's happening what are the smells you know whatever yeah. it is can like absolutely affect you yeah the and as I got deeper and deeper into my addiction with opiates specifically. It then went from using on the weekends or using when I was actually in, you know, quite a bit of pain from the issues I was having with my back to every other day and then quite quickly to every single day having to have these. And then, you know, as you know, you're simply the wiring in your brain. It kind of becomes almost like when you use a path through a forest, it slowly gets wider and wider. The more that you use it, the more it gets trodden down. So now every single day I'm doing the same thing and I'm teaching my brain that the way that you cope in almost every situation in life because for a few years, that's what it was. The only way that you cope is by having these drugs in your system. And it's very difficult to break that. And I spent, I guess, from the time I was 20 years old, probably till I was like 22, I think was when I, you know, had my first attempt at recovery doing that like every single day. So to try and overcome that, it's more than just like, a 30-day or a 28-day stay at a rehab to get Mm -hmm. everything out of your system. And, you know, the the initial part, the easy part, if you will, it's going to take a long time. And that's where, for me, I get very discouraged when I look at the long term. And I don't know if that's the same with with everyone, but I know if I'm like, okay, in 10 years, I want this to happen in my life, I have no idea how to make that happen. So I just have to take it slow, you know, plan every single day out, and um, it's been it's been working. Yeah, I guess kind of switching over to the whole like goal talk and planning ahead. It's so easy to plan this super long term goal, which isn't even like realistic in a sense. I mean, it's good to have long term goals, but to think, all right, I want to be here in 10 years and not have those any in between things does nothing for you. You'll sit around with your I'm not going to say that you'll sit around with uh <laughs> I was going to say you'll sit around with your thumb up your butt. Right. I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to take that out. Yeah, let's change that. <laughs> How about twiddling your thumb? You know, you'll sit around doing nothing right. for you know 10 years and not even moving anywhere, not moving forward or anything. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, do you remember Robert at the village, counselor? Oh, yeah, that was my counselor. Yeah. Okay, great guy. And he... I think he was the um, CBT, like he mainly did CBT, right? Yeah. That yeah. was his thing. Well, Shout out to Robert. Yeah, he's great 
he's so great in groups because he has such a calm demeanor. Mm -hmm. And he did this one group where he talked about the fact that you need to do these basic things. And I think it got a lot of eye rolls. But one of the things was you need to rock a calendar. Just basic, like, this is what I'm going to do on this day. And go deeper than, like, okay, on the 30th, I have a doctor's appointment. Yeah, that's something that you should put on your calendar. But I've gotten to a point, and I've developed my my scheduling skills to where I have, like, four or five things every day on my calendar. And I found that that is so helpful to have. And obviously, you have the same <laughs> the same pattern. I do. I, I mean, I have to. I have, I use obviously my calendar. I have this app called Todoist, mm. which is awesome. Just checklists. Checklists I found are huge. Yeah. Like you have to kind of plan what a totally right handed swing we did here, curveball. Yeah. Going to this, went. but it's good, whatever. And, you know, you have to, you kind of, you have to plan everything out and checklists, man. I, I just have really learned to do that. Yeah. And so back to what we were talking about with set and setting. To change my environment, I'm not going to change that overnight, right? You can cut ties with those old friends, if you will, or whatever you would consider them as old using partners or partners in crime mm -hmm. or whatever. You can do that, but you're going to have to continuously every single day change that wiring in your brain that tells you the only way to cope is via drugs. So now I know one thing that helps me hugely is mindfulness with like deep breathing exercises for sleeping. I have many different skills that I've developed since going to the village and since starting, you know, recovery with Horizon. And even before with Jacasa when I was doing outpatient with them, I've developed a lot of different skills that I can plug into different areas of my life. But what happens is over time, I slowly forget them and I forget that, okay, this is a skill that I can use here. And this is a skill that I can use here. And what happens is my brain is like, wait, remember three, four years ago or six years ago or whatever, you use this skill for everything. And for somehow it like gets plugged back in there. And so that's what I'm like with reading in recovery every single day or reading a book about recovery every day. I'm kind of refocusing my attention and trying to create new patterns in my brain that say there are so many more ways to cope with life mm -hmm. than drugs. Kind of. I guess it's simple, but not easy because for me, it was just as easy or simple as repeating catching myself, going somewhere in my thoughts, whether it was negative thinking or wherever it was, stopping it and repeating something more positive, repeating something, because it is such a mental struggle when you are getting into recovery, or especially early recovery, to want to just go back to that. All right, if I can, your mind will like play tricks on you. It's like you have two things living inside of you. Mm -hmm. One that wants to be clean and recovery, and the other one who wants this drug, and they kind of just you know have this debate constantly. And yeah. It can dry, it can be maddening sometimes because it's very frustrating and you have to really just keep saying something over and over again, stopping yourself, catching yourself, and it can become exhausting. Yeah. And I really, truly wonder how many people just get exhausted and just say, screw it, I'm just going back to using. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that issue. And I know that, you know, I have had issues with just getting tired. And a lot of times it has to do with depressed for mm -hmm. me. And that's, you know, part of the mental health aspect of it that I'm treating, you know, now is when I get depressed, then I can't do, for me, when I'm depressed, if I'm at the deepest point, I'm not even getting out of bed to go to work. But even when I'm in like a, a shallower level of depression, it's all I can do 
to get out of bed, go to work, come home, and get back in bed. Like, mm -hmm. So how am I going to, when I'm depressed, stave off those urges yeah. and those negative thoughts? I'm not. And that's where this last time, that's, I think, what tripped me up. And that's why I'm really happy to be diving into the mental health aspect of my recovery just be happy man why can't you just be happy right you know? just be happy i wish i was why aren't you happy right <laughs> people who don't understand depression it's frustrating it, it well i mean be quite frank man i remember early on you know in my marriage michelle my ex-wife was depressed and i had that mindset i mm. really was just it's like what the f what the f is your problem like stop it like, Jesus, we have two kids. Like, what is going on? And, you know, and it's just people who don't, it's ignorance. I yeah. mean, I was very ignorant to what depression was. I've never really dealt with it. Even after my brother and sister dying, I would never say I was depressed. Okay. Obviously, sad and depressed is a completely different thing, mm -hmm. you know, and I've never really have dealt with it up until more after my divorce is when I really dealt with stuff like that. But, and that's just situational, you know, so I've never really have dealt with it as in like a chemical imbalance sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, people are just ignorant to it. And it is it is like people are just like that. Why can't you just be happy? What's yeah. wrong? Because you can have everything you need. Right. And life can be, from the outside, look great to, you know, to other people and still be depressed if there's something that, some imbalance going on. Yeah, that's absolutely, that was my view actually prior to my addiction. And when I was a kid, before I, you know, ever used any substances, I had no idea what depression was and I would have had a more ignorant view on it until I personally experienced it. And then the other side of it is not being able to like explain it to anybody. Yeah, my life is great. I, I know that I have all these great things in my life, comparatively speaking, but I just have zero joy i think anhedonia is what it's called like when you can't experience any joy mm -hmm. in any form and and that's something that you just have to experience to know like how real and debilitating it can be yeah it, it absolutely can be it absolutely can be what else in this book really kind of hit home with you the other one the other chapter i think is the harm reduction chapter and how and i think that's like towards the end of the book where she starts talking about solutions you know, nationally to our addiction problem and harm reduction being one of them. And I've heard that term used a lot mm -hmm. in recovery. You know, it's basic harm reduction. And I mean, that's what a safe injection site is, you know? Right, yeah. exactly. Another thing that she cites in the book that I never thought of as harm reduction is designated drivers and like, media campaigns for like wearing seatbelts that's for alcoholism right and they're not arguing that drinking alcohol is wrong they're just saying do it safer yep do it in a safe environment if we took a more harm reduction a harm reduction view if we took that view in our society on addiction we would have such higher numbers of recovery because i know there's other countries that have completely taken that as their form of of recovery and it's far and away the success rates are much much higher well matthew um alcohol is legal okay right alcohol is not illegal <laughs> like your other drugs that you guys are trying to do yeah <laughs> that's and and that stems from like the morality side of the argument mm -hmm. and if it was really about that, then smoking that kills basically half of the people who become addicted to it should be the most illegal substance on the planet. But exactly. We've got people out here. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. 
And I always just tell people, like, I can't even get into it anymore with people or even try to have a conversation with somebody who's just totally the person who drinks 35 cups of coffee in a day who doesn't want certain things to be legal or at least to criminalize. It's like, I can't talk to you. Right. Because it's just like, go look at the other countries in the world who have decriminalized all drugs and see what has happened. That's it. That's all I can say to people. Yeah. Go look and do some research on the countries who have decriminalized all drugs, who have safe injection sites, and then come back and we can have a discussion. Right. Yeah, it's, it is hugely successful. And I think that what the the outline that she makes in her book for basically how to reform mm-hmm. completely our you know, societal norms around addiction and recovery, they're great. And the it's a great book. It's a long read, but the 20th chapter in that book kind of breaks down like all the ideas that she has. And even that, like if you can just read that one chapter, there's so much that you can get out of just knowledge about addiction and recovery. And she has her personal story like strewn throughout that book, which is a cool story. Yeah, it's, it's cool how she wrote it. I was very happy with it because she does throw cool parts of her story in throughout it kind of backs it up with her experiences and why she thinks that way yeah it was very i was very happy with it yeah and for me someone who i know that i have a lot of things that are stacked in my favor like i have probably an easier road to recovery than basically anyone who's injected drugs because i never went down that road to see that she is someone who's become highly successful and she had a if you will deeper and darker darker addiction than mine i don't like Mm -hmm. to you know compare them like that but you know what i'm saying someone to become that successful after the fact it's it's really encouraging to see yeah she does she was a great writer it's awesome to see those people who who are successful even like when you hear like these some a lot of the movie stars who have been clean for Mm -hmm. 10 years and you know we have this this mind especially being in a creative you know being a creative person that we need drugs in order to connect with our creativity or to connect with something and it's just simply not true Mm -hmm. and i think that's that's something i would love to do a podcast on creativity and addiction because i've been really thinking like a creativity has this this thing that kind of comes along with it and a lot of it is, you know, pain in early childhood produces a lot of creative people. It's not necessarily like something that has to be. Like right. You don't have to have somebody close to you die or whatever, or have this terrible experience. But a lot of it, a lot of creative people have had these experiences. A lot of creative people and artists and musicians and everything else yeah. suffer from addiction. And there's like almost like this curse of creativity because it's a it's so hard to be successful. Mm-hmm. If you're a creative person, it's hard to sell your paintings. Like it's hard to even like being an author. Yeah. Like in order to sell a good amount of books, you have to sell a good amount of books. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be hugely popular. And you know, and that's how you like a small amount of people carry the vast majority of sales and m- income that are in creative things, yeah. whether it's musicians, authors, sports, play, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, but it's also like creativity drives everything forward. But yet so many people, I think in recovery, and I want to like look more into this. Yeah. Like, why aren't we reaching towards people's creativity? Because somebody who is creative, if they don't express that creativity, will go effing mad. Like you will rage. And I just am always frustrated with like, why aren't we teaching and getting and connecting people when they're in rehabs with their creativity more yeah it's just something that's kind of been spinning 
in my head recently because there's I met so many amazing creative people. Yeah. Throughout, you know, Well, yeah, recovery. think about how many guitarists there were yeah. at the village at the time that we were there. And like even when I was at um Terrace House, when I was there, I think there were like four or five dudes that played guitar. Like mm-hmm. it is definitely there's definitely something there and I don't know what it is, but that would be something cool to really dig into. Yeah, I'll have to send you this Jordan Peterson actually, this little hour and have conversation with somebody about creativity. Yeah. Because it's super, it. super interesting. But do it. Yeah. So Unbroken Brain. Great book. What's it, Maya? How do you pronounce her last name? Salavit. Salavit. Yeah. That's S Z A L A V I T Z. I'll leave a link in the description of the podcast for yeah, her book. We definitely. I guess we should uh give her some credit because she's an awesome writer. I do I did I love the way she wrote this book. Yeah. It was very good. Unbroken Brain, a revolutionary new way of understanding addiction, which I think we're all in a need for here because yeah. even with the so even before the social distancing thing, things aren't slowing down. Nope. You know, people are still feeling the disconnection and trying to escape from it. Yeah. And you know what's crazy is that we keep hearing all these commercials like, we're going to get through this together, but we've never been more separated than mm-hmm. we are now. Oh, it's crazy. It is insane. It's nuts, especially after this whole cop and the dude dying thing. Oh, man. I didn't even realize thing. last night they put a curfew in Buffalo. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell did they put it? I guess there's people, this is how much I watch the news. <laughs> Christine texts me, there, things are going crazy because they they got a curfew in from 10.30 to 7.30 in the morning. I'm like, for like COVID-19? What? What's, what's, she's like, no, protesters. I'm like, what are they protesting? <laughs> yeah. She's like, about this guy who got killed. I don't know, where was it? In Minnesota or something? Know. I don't watch the news either. Yeah. I just heard from people at work, but yeah, it's gotten crazy. I guess Rochester too has experienced riots and stuff. Yeah, it's nuts. And we're not even going to go down that road because no. this is a podcast about mental health and recovery. Right, right. <laughs> All right. It's been great. Sean. But yeah, dude, I, um, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed this book. Yeah. It was an awesome one. Yeah, I originally got this from the library. I'm going to buy a copy myself. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I'll leave a a link for anybody who's interested in checking this book out. It's great. And we should keep this little book club thing going, bro. Yeah, I got another book from you. You got the the Rewired. We'll have to uh, talk about that when you're done with it. All right. Or even if we go like some chapters. Yeah. Because I'd like to focus in more and get more in depth. I would even like to come back to this book because I would like to refresh myself a little bit and... Even if we pick some chapters to go through. Definitely. I think we might just start a series. This could be a new series. A book club series. All right. That's right. <laughs> All right, brother. I'll talk to you. Yeah, you do. Peace. Peace.